This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Michael J. Bobbitt, we talk about systemic racism, what it looks like, and how we can change it. We also talk about educating through the arts. We discuss his movements and changes to create anti-racist theater with uh, subscriptions, which he talks more about as well. We cover writing styles, his daily rituals, and the future of collaboration, what it all looks like. So I do hope you enjoy this part two with Michael J. Bobbitt, and keep on keeping on. Admitting that you're on the quote unquote right side is not enough, you know, saying that it has to come from action. And I think, you know, finding that for many people in different ways and what that means to different people is going to be very interesting. But you're right, you know, with the ally, just like (laughs) you get an ally, you get an ally, you get an ally. It's like, okay, 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 okay. But now what are we going to do, do, actively do, you know, progressively do physically the movement? So, thank you. Thank exactly. you for saying that. Yeah, and, and, and in big strategic and conceptual ways, I looked at an illustration the other day where <laughs> there are white people pulling down a statue, and next to them is this large, 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 large statue called systemic racism. And there are black people going, "Hey, do you not see that big statue up there?" <laughs> like the small tactics, the small tactics of pulling down a statue is not going to fix racism. We need people to focus on the more, the bigger, more global issues. Yeah. Well, yes. And with that, I believe comes education. And I do, I thought yeah. you said something fantastic earlier about children will believe what you tell them, you know, like the Stephen Sondheim is children will listen. And I think even yeah. more so credit than I give to grown adults, adults will believe what you tell them <laughs> and adults will listen. And I want to start with um, theater for young audience. And why, why to you that is so crucial for children to have um, the proper stories told in front of them in a proper way? Well, just practically, if we want to have artists and long, long-time patrons of the arts, we need to get kids sort of in many ways brainwashed about the arts when they're young um, to expose them to this when they're very, very young. Uh, and, and it also has to be really, really good. Otherwise, they'll grow up maybe not being the best artist or maybe not knowing the power of what great theater can, can look like when they get older. So that's one thing. Secondly, um, I, you know, again, the world is theirs. The world is theirs. You know, that, that's who we should be, like, designing everything for, for them. How are we taking care of them and the most marginalized versions of them? And I think theater for young audiences can do that. It can show kids that um, the world can look like whatever we decide it wants to look like. Um, and so that's why it's important to tell all kinds of stories and show stories about, um, again, the contributions of people of culture um, and show stories about universalism. I, I jokingly say that most children's theater is written to teach kids how not to be assholes to each other. But that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's true. And yeah. so that, 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 theater, that theater can, can do all those things. The other thing I think about theater for young people and really in the arts in general and, and, and why it's so important that we are perpetuating arts and that we're not cutting it from school funding. But I think of imagination as seeing the world different and creativity is bringing imagination to life. 
and art is the product of creativity. So we have to cultivate imagination. We have to get people learning how to use their imagination and expanding their mind to the creative process. Otherwise, we won't have technology advances and advances in science and sociology. That's why every kid needs to experience art so that they can see that you can have an idea in your head and then in a few minutes you can actually put it on paper and make something beautiful. It's so vastly important. Um, someone had to have the idea for you know, the polio vaccine and now hopefully COVID vaccine, but that idea comes from using your imagination. I want to talk about stories, the stories we need more of, and then we're going to jump into variations of that. Um, as far as stories we need more of, does anything come to mind right now for you? I think we need more stories of black, indigenous, and people of color and their contributions, again, to culture. I'm going to sort of say that again. We don't need to see their trauma. Uh, I mean, I think we need to know their history, um, but we need to balance out the canon of work that's there because most work about marginalized people in American theater canon are about the thing that makes them marginalized. It usually comes from a place of trauma. So we need less trauma dramas and more more BIPOC joy stories, um, and, and that will and that will make the, this 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 that will make race less difficult, less hard. I mean, I tell people all the time when I grew up as this kid loving musical theater, the only thing I got to see was Sound of Music or Oklahoma or Greece on TV. Right. And that was all white people. That was all white people. I I know so much about white people from from just because that was the only thing I had. <laughs> I know so. You much. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was the only know. thing that I had. Yeah. And when I left theater school, when I left theater school, I knew how to act like a white person, dance like a white person, and sing like a white person because those are the techniques that I learned in theater school. And those are the stories we read and the songs we sang and the music we danced to. It was all white stuff. And so, um, in fact, when I, I remember the first time doing Shakespeare, I, I could not see myself myself in the role. I saw myself as a white person playing the role, mm. um, which is kind of messed up that after all that money I spent on schooling that I, I, I learned how to be white. Um, and the other thing, too, is that if we show more stories and teach different techniques, everyone benefits. When you take care of the most marginalized, everyone benefits. Um, and so that, that's why it's so important that we tell different stories. As uh, an artistic director, you've been in the quote-unquote room many times with writers, directors, choreographers, even lighting designers, sound designers, set designers, all of it, everyone, the massive collaboration that it takes to put on a piece of live theater. Uh, if, if we could role play for a second and kind of just daydream in a way, but not in a, not in a passive way, in an active way of what this could look like as a collaboration between a black indigenous person of color, Latinx and a a white person. How, how do you see the, the proper way in which collaboration to tell a story could take place? Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I think of it like as a, as a salad, like the better salads are the ones that have a mixture of things. Amen. When there's only like one, when there's only, I mean, imagine, imagine a salad with one ingredient. Yeah. I don't need it. It'd be really boring. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> don't eat it. It'll be really boring. Like, who's going to pick up a piece of lettuce and just eat lettuce, right? right. But when it's mixture with it's mixed with this and that and this and fruit and blah 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 and blah blah blah, sure. then it's just so much nicer. And that's what that sort of collaborative process can look like when the people in the room are diverse. The amount of creativity that comes out of that experience is amazing. If there's only one perspective on life coming out of a project, you get this, you get you, you limit your creative process. If everyone is bringing all of themselves to the table, then there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and hey, what about this idea? It's just more creative. And so it was like every time I direct a show, people say, oh, my God, you're so creative. And I go, no, I disassemble the inverse team. And I exploit who they are in the process. And so the, the new ideas pop up all the time. Um, so that's, to me, what, what it could look like. And, 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 it, and, it, and it's, just, it's just glorious. Everyone feels safe and feels valued there. And, and we're not... You know, we're not asking, uh, I don't know, it's hard to say because I've also, often, often been in the room where I was the only black person in the room and then everyone turns to me to, to answer all the questions about the black thing in the show. And I go, well, I'm not the, I'm not the bearer of all things black. If we had more <laughs> black people in the room, then we could, right. you know, we could right. collaborate more. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like the analogy and I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's a salad. Everyone would eat it. I um yeah. I, I want to jump into um well before we go so before we go into your method of writing, I want to talk just while we're still on artistic directing for a little bit. Um, communication, negotiation. Um, how have you gotten better at you know pushing a point, letting a point ride? Because it is collaborating, and you are the you know you can be the artistic director, the director, the choreographer. What have you learned about? proper, you know, negotiation, and we could even tie in communication to that. Yeah, um, well, again, inclusion, I think, is probably, I would say, a core value of mine. Um, sure. And some of, it just, some of it is just practicality. Like, I just don't want the responsibility of, of having, to be the, having to be the smartest person in the room <laughs> or having to have the answer. Right. You know what I mean? I, yes, I yes. want us all to have that answer. So sure. even in my season planning, in my season planning, it is a completely collaborative process. And so if it goes badly, then we all share the blame, not just me. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But I, I think the, the line I draw when it comes to, uh, I mean, so one, I, so I also know that I am blessed with um, somehow boundless creativity. Um, and vision, and so I'm thankful for that. I have no idea where it comes from outside of having many, 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 many experiences in life. Um, so I also know that leaders have to be willing to be persecuted for the ideas that they have, especially if those ideas are meant to change the world. And so I, I, I hold that space with as much reverence as it deserves. Um, so often, if the idea is strong, I will... I will vet it with a bunch of people, and before it depends on when we um, want to roll it out. When we roll it out, we hear people's concerns. Um, the line for me when it comes to negotiating or how long we let something roll is if the decision has to do with, with excluding people or including people. So if there's a decision that we identify that is exclusive or racist or we can't continue doing that, 
and there's pushback in changing that, then I don't really have a lot of tolerance for that because I don't want to perpetuate things that are excluding anyone. So right now at New Rep, we are um, we're getting rid of subscriptions, which I think are one of the most racist models that this theater has perpetuated for many, many years. And I know that the initial intent of those things were about cash for the organization. But right. if you think about it, who, ha who has enough cash to buy a year's worth of tickets six months in advance? And what, what privileges are we giving them? What seats are they buying? Are they buying the best seats? And then how many brown and black poor and young people are we relegating to the not best seats in the house? Along with that, we are also going to general admission seating so that everyone has the chance to sit up front. Um, those things to me are saying that we are, we are being as inclusive as possible and we're getting rid of policies and practices that have excluded large populations of people. So you can imagine that there's, there are a lot of people who are on board with it because they see it as a race equity thing. And there are a lot of people who are fearing lost if they had that seat for 20 years. And what do you mean I have to show up 20 minutes early so I can get that seat again? Right. Um, it, and then things like, it's going to be chaos and people are going to fight. And I go, no, they won't. When you went to synagogue or church this weekend, were there fights? <laughs> when you went to that restaurant, when you went to that restaurant or their coffee house, were there fights? When you got on the bus, were there fights? No, this is no. a normal practice. So, um, so yeah, so that's the kind of thing. So, like the pushback is we should keep it, and I'm like, no, it's inequitable. So the answer is no, we're not keeping these kinds of things. Um, so, that, so I tend to uh, again a super inclusive process. We don't make any decisions, especially on the staff level, without um, without everyone having a chance to buy in. I know that with this job, I have this invisible word boss on my head, even though I don't feel like the boss. I feel like <laughs> we are all making the decisions, the decisions together. Right. But if the decision is going to hurt um, or uh, invalue people, then, then the, there's no negotiating. There is, here's what we're doing. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. Get with it. Right. No, and I, I think that's, I have, I see, I have never even thought of, I'm not in a position of artistic directing, so I, I wouldn't be, my mind wouldn't be tuned to it, but that's a fantastic point you're bringing up with uh, subscriptions, subscription-based, you know, seating. That's such a, it's just such a good point. Yeah, and then when subscribers come to the theater, I mean, that whole model to me doesn't work financially. It doesn't work from a season planning perspective. Um, I mean, like financially, we're getting all this money uh, in the fiscal year prior to the, the season. So we're, and we're spending that money because it's built as a cash flow model. Uh, we're spending the money we're getting now for something we're supposed to produce next year. So God forbid there's a flood or a strike or a pandemic. <laughs> We've already spent your money, right? Right. Right. And, and then because it's all booked into one season, if the beginning of the season tanks, then the board is making me cut, cut from the, next shows to balance the budget, which means the rest of the season they tank. Um, I, I'm spending gobs of money renewing subscribers, um, and then the marketing department is hijacked. Why aren't we doing like automatic renewals, like every other kind of subscription thing that you find out right. there? I mean, there's so, many, there's so many reasons why it doesn't work. I mean, the other thing, too, I don't like is that if I have a hit show, I can only extend it for a week or two. Yeah. Um, because the next show has to open because subscribers have bought tickets for that next show. 
And consequently, uh, and on the other side of it, if I have a flop, I can't close the flop early because subscribers bought ticket to the last week of the run. So there's so many reasons why. One of the things that always hurts me is that, you know, I'm always asked to do the curtain speech and thank our subscribers. Well, the idea of saying, thank you, subscribers. We love you more than we love anyone else that's coming to the theater (laughs) is another way to to exclude people. So it has to go. Yes, it does. I, uh, I, I love that. I love that. I want to, I want to turn gears to the playwright side of Michael. Um, what was the first piece that you wrote or you remember writing? Oh, wait, um, as far as a play is concerned, um, I, I think, I think there was some adapting of some of the shows at the Smithsonian that Roberta and I worked on. Um, but that, and that was fascinating. And I was a creative writing minor in college, but it was mostly sort of poetry. Um, there wasn't a lot of, uh, poetry and short stories. There wasn't, um, dramatic, um, writing. Um, but I, the, the thing I worked the, the hardest on was with my um, longtime collaborator of, I don't know, 28 years, maybe John Cornelius. Um, I remember having, um, I was in a, a series of callbacks for the original production of Rag, Ragtime, and uh, I had just come off the national tour of Kiss of the Spider-Woman, and I wore Brian Stokes Mitchell's clothes, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think New York got excited about this guy that was Brian Stokes Mitchell's size, so I got lots of callbacks for Ragtime, and I remember getting 95 pages of music inside oh, that I had to learn in like two I know it was crazy. It was like a rehearsal more than it was an audition. Right. But I had a couple of days to to learn it, and so I connected with this with this music director to to sort of teach me the songs. And um and he and I just clicked. And then in a couple of days later, he sent me this play. And he was like, "You'd be perfect for this part in the play." And I read the play. I didn't really like it, but there was a, a centralized story in that play about a menage a trois between uh, a man and his boyfriend and his girlfriend which in the early 90s was provocative. Now it's like, whatever. Um, <laughs> but but he, he and I decided to work on that, that centralized story and make the whole play about that. And then from there, we did a lot of work. So, I, so that was the first time writing dramatically and working with a partner and figuring out sort of what dramatic writing feels like. And of course, because I'm Michael Bobbitt, I took a whole bunch of classes in, online and with other people and worked with, dramaturgs just to kind of learn a little bit more about playwriting what is what does your process look like are you are you working on anything right now or when you've worked on things in the past do you write in the morning in the evening whenever you get a chance yeah so one of the things i like about playwriting is that i can work in isolation um as an artistic director i do everything i know how to do every single day (laughs) Right. There is no right. day I don't I don't know how to do everything I know how to do. Um, so and then I'm so I have to be so publicly aware. I think in many ways uh, the artistic director job is a PR job. Once you get the season pick and the artist pick, then the rest of the time is spent like on the street selling the work and selling the product and getting support for it. So the chance to work as a playwright is kind of nice because I can like curl up on the bed or on the couch and just write. Um, so. Um, so yeah, so I, what I like to do and almost everything I write is in collaboration, uh, except a, f- a few little plays here and there. 
Well, I, let me say, 75% of what I write is in collaboration. The other other 25% is my own little plays. But um, because I'm working in collaboration mostly, I uh, and even without collaboration, I like to like to labor over the synopsis. Um, I want to get everything in the synopsis I can think of. I want to feel like like I know the beginning, the middle, and the end, what the sort of main conflict is, how it resolves. I want to feel excited when I read the synopsis, and I usually get feedback on that. And then I break the synopsis down into scenes, especially if I'm working on musicals. The composers I work with tend to not write a song until they see the scene first, which I think is, is a good way to do it. Mm. Um, so usually I'll break it down into scenes, then I break the scenes down into events, um, and, and then once I get the events in the order that I like, I will start writing stream of consciousness based on those events and then eventually start crafting the scene using the techniques that I know. Um, and, and, and the draft music comes fairly fast. And then from there, I'm so open and collaborative to feedback. And I learn so much when the artists read it and I hear from the artists. Um, so super, again, super collaborative process. Um, to answer a question about what I'm working on, um, I am uh, co-writing uh, an adaptation of Make Way for Ducklings, which uh, Adventure Theater and Wheelock Family Theater here in Boston will be doing. There's a workshop um, pr production of it right now, I think, at BU as part of a class. Um, I am just starting to do research. Um, I have a treatment uh, on it, but I'm doing uh, research on an Ella Fitzgerald play. Um, there's so much about her life, especially her childhood, that I think would be very, very interesting to a lot of people. And I figured out my, a cool, dramatic way to tell the story. And then I am working on an adaptation of the Monster Mash song, which I think speaks to uh, uh, what's happening in society right now. Basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a, I tell people the tone of it is like that boy or little shop of horrors meets mean girls so like a high school drama with monsters with monsters that's great um yeah. but i'm super yeah super excited about all those i the hardest part too is i just don't i don't have time and I, it's hard to write when i don't have a commission so both ella and monster mash are things i want to write but i'm hoping my agent can actually sell the the treatment before i start really writing writing yeah. Has the has the pandemic slowed you down, so to speak, in terms of productivity? Oh, oh my God, no way. There's no. My, my calendar is more packed than ever. Yeah. And some of the packed part of it is, is supporting people in their black in their anti racism work. Sure. Um certainly certainly as an arts leader who is black, I'm asked to speak at lots of different places and be on lots of panels, so those are coming. It seems like there's three, at least three a week. Okay. Both three opportunities, three opportunities, and three new offers a week, which I'm you know blessed by because I got to pay for this kid's college. Um, and <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, and then and then as we're pivoting to try to figure out what theater looks like in the future, there's a learning curve because because the theater industry is so far behind on the digital platform, just so far behind. Yes. There's a lot of learning lot of learning about what this is, what it can do, how is it creative, how does film merge with with stage in the most creative way. Uh, but I also think all those things are amazing opportunities. And I know at New Rep, we're planning on keeping the digital programming that we have discovered. 
um, next year if we can reopen the theater. Are you willing to talk about the digital programming that you've discovered? Is that something we could discuss for a moment? What have you discovered? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I don't know if it's innovative yet, but I think it's, okay. uh, you know, I told I told the staff, you know, let's not jump into this. Let's really take our time to think about it and think about um, what we want to keep in the future. So we have this thing called a script reading book club that meets once a month. So we send we send out a script of a living playwright. Um, we I'm going national one month and then local one month. And then we all get online with a dramaturg-led conversation with the playwright uh, and a Q&A with the patrons. Um, I want to sort of train my patrons to really love the content of the play and the writing and the process behind writing it uh, so I can build a new work program. So that's doing really well, and it's super fun to have at least a play to read a month. Um, I'm doing a Sunday panel discussion with art artists and arts leaders from Boston um, once a month on Facebook Live. And that is, uh, we were talking about COVID at first, but now we're talking about Black Lives Matter. So we'll talk, we'll tackle current events that affect um, the theater industry, uh, which I'm super excited about. Mm. We are about to launch our digital play series, uh, trying to create a live experience in digital format. So so basically, patrons will come to a web page. They'll meet a um, some sort of house manager who will explain the night. They'll go to one of two plays that are all each be thirty minutes long. The playwrights are writing plays using Zoom as a plot point. Um, so, so the platform of, of Zoom or whatever the digital um, medium we're using is part of the play. Uh, the mm-hmm. plays have to be interactive. So, so one of the playwrights is like a Mark, one of the characters is like a Martha Stewart craft person, going to be taking the audience through a craft project. But during the um, airing, the, you'll learn that, the, that the, um, the host of this TV show has a lot of emotional problems. And so <laughs> <laughs> the audience will get to experience, get to experience that. And then uh, at intermission, you'll meet a virtual bartender or a busker. And then after intermission, you'll go see the second play. I love um, that. So I'm kind of excited. That, yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. We're trying to figure out what the pre-show experience is if we're watching the actors get ready and set up and if there's a post-show conversation, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at um, partnering with a bunch of individual artists to do sort of a new rep after dark digital thing where we'll invite all kinds of artists singers, dancers, magicians, comedians, stupid pet tricks, whatever you want to do, we'll give you a platform to do that. And we're starting to look at what digital classes we can offer as well. But the skies are the limit. We're having lots of fun conversations, and um, I'm looking forward to all kinds of other new, new ideas. Michael, that's incredible. I can't wait to see what continues to flourish from all of this creativity. It's just, it's beautiful, you know? And we need, we need more, more people like you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Short. Thank you. Thank you. And I thank appreciate you. We're trying. I'm trying. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's an absolute beautiful thing. I, I want to touch for a second, if you're willing. Um, do you have any bedtime or morning rituals for yourself? I do. I do. Again, self-care is a huge part of my life. Um, people joke at me, but I only eat whole food plants. Okay. So I don't eat anything processed, nothing processed, no sugar, no dairy, um, no meat. Um, so that's just one example of, of how, how, how strong health, 
self-care is for me. Um, so the morning I do, I, ha- I spend the time just kind of chilling out, having my coffee. Um, sometimes I will set, set an intention for the day or I'll do a little bit of med- meditation or mindfulness just to kind of get my brain prepared. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I go work out with the trainer. Uh, if I feel like it on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'll also go do some exercise. I try to get a little yoga in on weekends. Um, and then uh, at night, I have my kind of like take care of my teeth and my face and my skin kind of routine. Sure. Um, and, then, and then I will listen to some sort of, sort of podcast. But one of the things I love to do is I have a beaded bracelet on my nightstand and I will touch each bead and name something that I'm grateful for. And there are 30 beads, so you have to like, you have to like really sort of invent some stuff. But what that does is it forces me to look for things that add happiness to my life during the day. Because I have to remember 30 things at night. Yeah. Um, so smaller things, like smaller, like today I was driving home and seeing like the leaves changing colors and there was a, a small gaggle of turkeys on the side, and there was a puppy with big old floppy ears. So those are things I will name in my gratitude um, bead-touching thing at night. And it just puts me in a place of, of, of positivity. If you've ever met negative people, it doesn't matter what you say to them. The response is always negative. You can say, what a beautiful day, and they'll say, it's so hot, because right. they practice. <laughs> They practice, you know what I mean? They I practice do. being negative. Yes. But yeah, so if you, can, if you can practice being positive, then you'll be positive. You might have just answered this. I'm curious if there's a piece of advice you would give to a younger person who is wanting to seek out positivity during this time. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, yeah. De- develop a, a, a an intense self care practice now. I mean, so many of us have what I call self care deficits or self love deficits, I should say, um, where you know things that have happened in our past we still hold on to, um, and they or, or some experience you had makes you feel like you were not loved. It could be anything from like you knocked over a glass of milk and, and mom yelled at you and called you clumsy and then dad didn't come to your rescue so you didn't you, you, you were you know yelled at for this accident and then no one saved you and told you that that you had a, it was just an accident you're not a clumsy person so anyway we grow up with tons of self-love um, deficits and if there's a way for you to find out where the core where that comes from what events caused that and then correct by having self-love abundance, which means having a massive and a strong self-care practice. You can develop that when you're young. Oh my God, the kind of life you're gonna have is gonna be amazing. That's why I said I feel like, even though I'm 48, um, approaching 50, I feel like I'm in my 20s, because it feels like life is all over again, and I feel like I have another 50 more years to go, which I'm gonna try to get to. I'm trying to get to 140, that is my goal. When did and you I decide that? Make it happen. <laughs> what, about a, about a few years. Well, I, I found out about blue zones, which are there are nine places on the planet where uh, there are large populations of people that live beyond the age of a hundred up until one hundred forty. Blue so zones. So I want to live that long. Yeah, I want to. I want to live that long because I want to see the end of racism. Yeah, yeah. that's why I want to live that long. That's okay. that's my goal. So I'm just I'm going to live a blue zone life. I love that. A blue zone life. I love, I've never heard of that. I love that. 
Goodness, goodness, this is a great conversation. I I want to uh, just ask a few more as we end here. I am curious, do you have any favorite books or most gifted books that come to mind? Um, I don't like reading. Okay. Which is a, a shame to say, especially because I'm supposed to be reading a lot of scripts. But I tell you the reason why, because I'm a visual person, so I get so distracted when I'm reading, I start seeing the things that are in the book. So it just took me a long time to read. <laughs> Documentaries? However. Podcasts? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I do. And, I, I, and if, if there's an option to have something on um, Audible, then I will, I will choose that. Um, so I really do like the teachings of Brene Brown. Um, so I, I, I encourage people to, uh, to look at Brene Brown's stuff. Um, I also, as far as fiction is concerned, I, I think maybe because it's so gratifying because the chapters are so small. I like anything by Dan Brown. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the book. And then my favorite book that I actually read, I find, find myself reading every four or five years, is a book I read when I was a kid called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Um, so I, I, those, are, those are my favorite things, my three favorite books. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. This is, this yep. is great. Is there, if, if one could come to mind, is there a failure or favorite failure or apparent failure that set you up for future success? Yeah. So I don't know if I call it a failure because it is a success. I think right. I failed to understand the gravity of the situation, but at adventure theater, we reached capacity in the theater. And so we wanted to expand and wound up um, acquiring a theater academy. And I just blindly trusted that everyone was going to love the idea of this. And I didn't do the kind of selling and, um, and, 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 and enrolling people into this idea that I did, that I, that I should have done. And so the shock of the acquisition was really hard for the patrons at the, at the, at the school. And I should have just done a lot more, but that taught me a lot about change management and how I need to like, and like when I have the idea, share it with people, have talk to people, understand what their fears are, understand what they, what they think about loss. Um, so that taught me a whole lot about organizational transition, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And outside of the pandemic, that organization that merged with a venture theater is now part of the company, and I think the merger doesn't even seem like it actually happened because it seems like it's always been there, and the theater company is thriving because of it. Yeah, yeah. Metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? Yes. I repeat what I said earlier, which is anti-racism or equity, diversity, and inclusion, whatever you want to call it. Anti-racism is an act of love. We are showing people who have never been loved by this country love. Uh, This is an attempt to end a race war, not start a race war. Yes, it is. And I think the work you're doing is most definitely ending it and contributing to that. And I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time to share with me the ins and outs of what you are working on. And I'm just so excited. I'm looking towards a, a bright future. You know, positivity is so, so important. I think we all should be looking towards that bright, that bright future with action, not just, you know, that allyship. So I really appreciate you sharing all of this today, Michael. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? No, just grateful for, to you for giving me the chance to speak on this stuff. And I'm, I'm you know, 
I'm impressed that you found me and I'm impressed that you saw what you saw and wanted to chat about it. And I really liked this conversation. Well, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Michael J. Bobbitt. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 